You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. We have been on a journey into exposing Kabbalah for seven weeks. This is week eight, and I'm not stopping anytime soon. I mean, there's just so much to say about this guy. So many reasons why it's bad. And an interesting thing is the more I say, you know, questions are still coming in and people are like, well, what about this? And what about that? It's actually funny. I'm actually getting requests. It's like, Daniel, can you expose this next? <laughs> so that's fun. Um, but for those of you that maybe have simply heard about what we've been uh, unveiling, but have not yet been to one of these services, uh, I'm going to do a bit of review like I have every week. Because a lot of this is new material, even for those of you that have been here week after week, it's in the repetition of some of the information that things anchor and settle in and you have the opportunity to digest what you've heard because we've heard a lot and, and, and <clears throat> we keep going into deeper and deeper water. So <clears throat> beginning with the question, what is Kabbalah? The answer is that Kabbalah is the ancient Jewish tradition of mystical interpretation of the Bible. It was first transmitted orally using esoteric methods. Now, Kabbalah is an esoteric method, discipline, and school of thought that originates in Judaism. Now, others have taken it and tried to take it out of Judaism and just make it more palatable for your witches and New Agers. But uh, truly, it's anchored to Judaism. Now, what is its connection to Judaism? Well, uh, according to some, it is actually the very heart of Judaism. And um, I... I'm not making that up. Why? Because, well, I did the research. And here we can clearly see <laughs> from one of my slides that uh, while one can taste the teachings of Kabbalah, even without being particularly observant of Judaism, um, you can't detach it from its source. Kabbalah is the heart of Judaism. That was from Kabbad.org. Their words, not mine. So uh, it is not possible to discuss Kabbalah part on a conversation of what is called Judaism or simply Jewish doctrine. As we've talked about, some Christians think Judaism is simply a study of the Old Testament. Why can't they just understand that Yeshua is their Messiah if they're reading the same book that we are? Answer, because they're not. Um, that's called Christian ignorance. Um, Jewish doctrine regarding the Old Testament actually comes from two primary sources. One is the Babylonian Talmud. This is a commentary of rabbis and scribes on uh, the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was written about 200 and something AD. It was the first major written collection of the Jewish oral traditions known as oral Torah. In other words, the same stuff that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for in the New Testament is where they are still getting their doctrine from today, only they've added this entire work of commentary on what Jesus rebuked them for, called the Talmud. And uh, they call that the Sea of Talmud. Kabbalah is the other source, and it means to receive. It's a collection of Jewish esoteric books, and even the most conservative Jewish rabbis today acknowledge that all, all Orthodox Jews give credence to the Kabbalistic works, which primarily includes the Zohar, which is the Book of Splendor, the Sefer Yetzirah, which is the Book of Formation, the Book of Mysteries, the Gate of Reincarnations, and three Enoch. 
Why have we been talking about it? It is not of God. It is not of God. Period. Yet it has influenced major areas of Christendom. Since many believers don't know what Kabbalah is, they don't know what its beliefs are or how to identify where it's influenced and poison the waters of what they believe. Kabbalah teaches an esoteric template for the creation of man and the creation itself. It's called the Kabbalistic tree of life or the Kabbalistic tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a source of revelation for students of the deep occult, which students include Eliphas Levi, H.P. Blavatsky, A.E. Waite, Manly P. Hall, Albert Pike, McGregor Mathers, and a host of other crooks. Thus, we are continuing to learn why Kabbalah at its core is a doctrine of demons and a revealing of the government of Lucifer. Now, what have we learned thus far about Kabbalah? One, we have learned that the Zohar goes into great detail on something known as the Ten Sephirot and the creation story they reveal. This is illustrated as a diagram uh, known as the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. And here, we can look at a very simplified version of it. Um, in the Kabbalah Tree, is, uh, it, we find that it is called both the Tree of Life and the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil interchangeably. This creation myth that relates to this tree replaces the revelation that Elohim is the creator. In other words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with the idea that a character named Einsof, which is a limitless light of nothing, the unknowable God works with the Keter and Chokma Sephirots, these guys, to create Elohim. Uh, they write Jesus out of the narrative of Genesis 1 because, well... In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, but that's not true because in their version, Yeshua is not their Messiah, right? So it sets up a cosmology that is entirely antichrist. On this point, we noted that Kabbalah is irreconcilable with Christianity to the core. Right from the beginning, they begin rewriting the cosmology and the narrative of the Old Testament reader. Now, that only gets worse from there with this foundation we taught through the rest of the tree what all of these points mean individually. Of course, you can go back and get that teaching. And how the ten sephirot tell a story of the light of Ein Sof traveling downward to establish the creation. It goes down to the tenth sephirot, which is called Malkut. And this is the kingdom of the physical world. Kabbalists view Malkut as Shekinah. In their mythology, she is the female counterpart of Ein Sof, the gateway of man's ascension to knowledge, the bride of Typhred, and the mother who is one with the children of Israel. The other nine Sephiroth exist in the spirit world. So, in their religion, uh, through Kabbalah-related initiations and ascensions, one can work their way up the tree into greater and greater illumination. Okay? We discussed how Kabbalah rewrites the concept of the second Adam. This is review. Who is Jesus, right? Because in the Bible... Jesus is the second Adam, but in Kabbalah, they invent a character. They call him Adam Cademan, and he is synonymous with the Keter or the crown. And he create, he works to create this tree, which is light descending, and then it breaks. They call it the shattering of the vessels. So then this Adam Cademan, primordial man, creates Adam, the physical man. So the second Adam becomes our first Adam in Christianity. And what does their second Adam do? Well, <laughs> he doesn't actually get deceived by the serpent. In other words, he unbalances the creation. So they rewrite the uh, 
story of the fall of man. And then they created a, a whole different version of God's redemptive agenda, which they call Tikkun, which is the repair of the worlds. And how do they do that? With mitzvah. In other words, by following Torah, which Kabbalists define to be our Old Testament interpreted through the lens of the Babylonian Talmud and Mishnah, plus Kabbalah, okay, Torah, the, the, now the redefinition of that. Um, that's how we establish the repair of the worlds, okay? And we're going to get more into Tikkun today because we're going to be looking at some really interesting things. But um, again, we see that they're writing Yeshua Jesus right out of the narrative at every point possible. Every major doctrine that solidifies our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do, they undo with their mythology. And that's why we call Kabbalah at Bride Ministries, Jewish fables, <laughs> doctrines of demons. Um, we learned that Messiah ben Joseph is their Messiah, the one working behind political Zionism and our Antichrist, right? And so we did a whole lot of exploration on that. We had to explore the conundrum of Jewishness and the plot of confusion concocted to push through the greater plan of political Zionism, which is absolutely tied to Kabbalah, also a passing. And I actually turned that one into a podcast, so you can review that even if you don't get access to this series at the Bride Ministries Church. Lastly, last week, we talked about Tetragrammaton, otherwise known as Yahweh. Um, and we learned that Yahweh, Tetragrammaton, is manifested in Jesus Christ for believers. How do you encounter Yahweh? Through Jesus. But what the Kabbalists do is they use Yahweh, that is Tetragrammaton, as a way to hack into the creation through what they call the sacred name, which is Yahweh. <laughs> um, so in Kabbalah, a study of Tetragrammaton reveals an expose on the identity of Antichrist. Anyway, that leaves us this week where we are going to look at some more horrific examples of how Kabbalists take the word of God and twist it to produce demonic revelations, which they believe to be illumination. Are you ready? <laughs> so this week, we are going to be talking about the kosher serpent of Kabbalah and the restoration of all things. And, and, and actually, this comes on the back end or the tail end of a question that was asked last week. So I'm going to be able to more fully unpack some things here. Um, but we, this, this is going to be addressing what they call the kosher serpent and, and then a, a, a look, a gander into something known as the restoration of all things. And so in Kabbalah, there is a secret doctrine called the kosher serpent. And in order to understand it, we must first understand gematria. So what is gematria? Gematria is the numerical equivalence of alphanumeric words and specifically Hebrew words. Now, if you do a study on gematria, you will find that you can apply gematria to any language. In the English, you can use gematria by saying A is one, B is two, C is three, A through Z, right? And each letter gets a number and then you will add the numerical equivalencies of words up and try to derive secret or hidden meanings from the words based on their numerical equivalencies. Now in Hebrew, the letters are designed to also be numbers. And so the entire Hebrew lettering system or alphabet is a numerical system by design. And so there, there is a whole science or practice, so to speak, of gematria, especially within Kabbalistic circles. 
So when we look at gematria, we find that each of the letters has a uh, numeric equivalency. Aleph is one, Beit two, Gimel three, Dalit four, He five, Bob six, Zion seven, Chet eight, Tet nine, Yod ten. Now, on the surface level, this is actually the design of God, and and I I fully acknowledge that. I, I I'm not saying that there is something satanic about the fact that the Hebrew letters have numerical equivalencies any more than I was saying that the name of Yahweh, yod heh vav is inherently evil in its origin, right? What we're going to learn today is how the study of gematria within Kabbalistic circles gets twisted in order to produce demonic revelations. But in and of itself, this is simply fact. The letters have numerical meanings. Now, uh, there are many types of equations that rabbis use to derive secret meanings and associations of words. And in doing this, they find ways to turn the, you know, straightforward gematria into witchcraft. And I want to identify this problem by giving you a scripture verse um, known, found in 2 Peter 1.20. And this says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, the word of God cannot mean something that it never meant, simply because you find a numeric equivalency by running numbers through an algorithm you create based around the values of the words. You can't make the Bible say something that it has never said legitimately. And, and that's what 2 Peter 1.20 helps us to understand. And a lot of Christian derivatives like, you know, uh, Mormonism and, and Jehovah's Witness and, and, and groups that we know to be false religions, they, they use the Bible, but they twist it, right? And, 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 and they make it say something that it never said. And, and they will augment it with other books so that they are interpreting whatever the Bible says through a different lens, like the Book of Mormon, right? Well, it's the same thing with Kabbalah. Kabbalah is to the Old Testament what the Book of Mormon is to the New Testament. You begin studying through that lens, you're going to end up with a different religion, plain and simple. And one of the ways that this happens is through gematria. Now, um, let's look at an example here. So... Now, gematria on the first word of the Bible, which is Bereshit. Now, I've done this study before, and I found it to be highly, highly fascinating, right? Um, as a matter of fact, if you took the mysteries of prayer course, I didn't really run the numbers, but I looked at the Hebrew letters and what the letters mean and was able to put together a sentence showing that Bereshit has hidden within it a revelation that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so you have a lot of equivalencies because every letter in the Hebrew language has a meaning and both a numerical value. So the other side of the meaning of the individual letters that comprise a word would be their numerical values. And so if we took the numerical values of Bereshit and just plainly added them up, Aleph or Beit for two, Resh 200, Aleph one, Sheen 300, Yod 10, Tav 400. 
we would be able to get a numerical equivalency of 913, right? And that's simply by adding the values of the letters together. But there are many, many types of gematria. And you have to understand this because when you get into gematria that is related to Kabbalah and what, what these rabbis do, they do different formulas. And there's, there's a list. I mean, there's well over, I think, 30 different formulas that you will find in different writings and different ways of interpreting the numbers or the numerical equivalencies of the letters in the, in the Hebrew language so that they can make passages say different things. So here's a formula called Mispar Parati. And this particular formula, so you understand what I mean when I use the word formula, calculates the value of each letter as the square of its standard gematria value. In other words, instead of bait meaning two, I can make bait mean two times two, which is four. Instead of resh meaning 200, I can make resh mean 200 times 200, which is a lot more, right? And so we go down we find that we can apply a different formula to the same word and get a totally different numerical equivalence. 290,105. Now, just imagine if I go through different passages of the Bible, right? Find words, put them through different formulas to make the numbers say different things, and then make deductions on what those numbers mean regarding what I believe about doctrine. Because I'm just twisting the word. I'm, I'm just making stuff, right? And, 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 and this is what happens with gematria and how it becomes witchcraft. You, you're studying passages. You're putting these words and, 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 and their numerical equivalencies through equations to make those numerical equivalencies different numbers and then deriving conclusions from those numbers. So the equation of gematria can make any word a different value to produce all manner of occult interpretive models that twist the word, the Old Testament. All right. Now, you just need to understand that in, in, in a general sense uh, because there's a lot of different directions we could go. But we're going to go in one specific direction next, and that's going to be in, in, in the direction of something known as the, the doctrine of the kosher serpent. And so I don't know if I was sharing that screen, but here you can um, look at that again. Okay, so quoting from a Kabbalist named Joel David Baxt in his book, The Secret Doctrine of the Gaiana Vilna, he says there is a well-known yet confusing rabbinic formula that points out the words nakash, or serpent, and Meshiach, or Mashiach, share the identical numerical value, 358. Now, the truth is, you don't actually have to run this through a funny equation to make that deduction. It actually happens just by adding up the numbers straightforwardly. So here's a uh, table for you to follow. Serpent is the Hebrew word nakash, and uh, that is nun shet sheen. And if you add those up, 50 plus 8 plus 300, you get 358. Messiah or Meshiach is mem sheen yod chet. 40 plus 30 plus 10 plus 8 is, oh my gosh, 358. Hmm. So, now, if I was studying the Bible, 
I wouldn't really go very far with this. Why? Because I know that the plain reading of the word of God places man at enmity with the serpent. I would read that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of darkness. I would understand that the Bible says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, and I will shortly crush Satan under your feet. But is that what they say? No, they develop a secret doctrine. What is the secret doctrine? <laughs> that since Nakash and Meshiach share the same numerical value, they must share a common objective. Watch this. In the reconciliation of the creation. In other words, the serpent becomes the good guy. I am not kidding. Well, I'm going to draw this out and I'm going to spell it out for you so that all of you understand exactly what happens inside of this bucket of, 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 of literally vomit called Kabbalah, where some Christians are getting their doctrine and training other Christians. It really makes me sick. This is so from this same system, we find this idea. Now, uh, before I go any further, I, I need to say this. There are other notable flaws um, coming off of Gematria. And I am going to take a moment to address the Bible code for a minute. And I'm going to tell you, because some people will ask, well, Daniel, what do you think about the Bible code? I don't take it very seriously. And I'm going to tell you why. The Bible code is an algorithm-based search of the Hebrew Bible text for phrases hidden in letters at various spaces in other passages of Scripture. So one of the biggest revelations that came in support, um, which was printed and shared and preached from various pulpits around the world, um, that, wow, we found the Bible code. And listen, listen to this evidence of the divine inspiration of Scripture, okay? If you take every 50th letter of the book of Genesis, starting with the first Tav. The Hebrew word Torah is spelled out through the whole book of Genesis. You find the first Tav in the book of Genesis, and then you look for every 50th letter, and you will spell Torah, 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 until you hit the last chapter of the book of Genesis without fail. It is there in the Masoric text. And so I, I don't deny that. I think that's actually an amazing discovery. I think it's really cool. I think you, you can look at that and say, wow, you know, that affirms to me that the Bible is legitimately inspired by a supernatural source. But you can't take this phenomena and apply it to everything everywhere in the Old Testament looking for phrases at various lettering spaces. It's like, you know, the same thing with gematria, just taking numbers of words and putting them through different equations to make them say certain things and then deriving revelation out of it. And, and I'm going to tell you why. I, I, I don't think that the Bible codes are accurate or, or even infallible or something that we should look at to derive, you know, prophetic understanding of what's to come, you know, putting, well, what is Trump going to do with his presidency? Let me look up phrases in the Old Testament and do this kind of stuff. And I'm going to tell you why, okay? This guy, Dr. James D. Price, 
wrote a series of articles on Bible codes. And using the Bible code, Price writes, one will find the Hebrew phrase translated Jehovah is a liar. That's Yahweh. Eight times. <laughs> Yahweh is dead. Occurs 23 times with Bible codes. There is no Yahweh. There is no Jehovah. Occurs dozens of times in the Torah, as does there is no God. This guy even found the phrase, Satan is Jehovah and Satan is God, using Bible codes. Can you imagine if your whole study of the Bible is based on Bible codes and you find that stuff? Right? The only thing that you're going to do is get mixed up in a whole bunch of stuff. And this is why we have to come back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, which says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. You can't just take a Bible code, privately interpret it through your algorithm, and deduce that Satan is Jehovah, which is what the Kabbalists do, right? Because... You, you, you get where I'm going. But they do the same thing with Gematria. That's how this stuff becomes witchcraft, okay? I'm spelling it out so we're all able to follow and understand how this stuff grounds out. Because, you know, you go somewhere and you hear people use the word Gematria. You, you hear the word, uh, you know, Bible code. You see a proof here. You see a text. And it's hard to pull all the pieces together and, 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 and make a picture out of it. It's like, well, how does this all fit? So... Any conclusion derived using gematria technique that changes or twists the plain text meaning of scripture cannot be defined as secret doctrine. It must be thrown out lest it produce heresy and leaven in our revelation of the word of God. If I do a numerical equivalency on a word in my own personal study, and I do another numerical equivalency, and it concludes, or I find two words of related value that are absolutely dichotomous in the presentation of the plain text of Scripture, I'm throwing out. I'm not going to teach it. I'm not going to lean on it. I'm not going to ponder it, right? Yet, this lands us in a secret doctrine in Kabbalah known as the kosher serpent. So now that we've addressed the issue with what we're about to learn, we're going to dive back into... Kabbalah land, to learn the function of the kosher serpent. Now, first of all, Daniel, what does the word kosher even mean? Answer. The word kosher means quite plainly genuine or legitimate. So the kosher serpent means the legitimate serpent, or in other words, that which is permissible to make use of. So when you talk about kosher food in Judaism, you're talking about food that is permissible to make use of. You can't make use of pork, right? Um, there are certain foods that God forbid the Israelites to eat in the Torah. So when we talk about the kosher serpent, we're talking about introducing the idea that the serpent was legitimate and genuine and even permissible for the first Adam to use, which is our first Adam slash their second Adam, just to make sure no one gets confused by that term. So now what you need to know is that Kabbalah teaches that the serpent in Genesis, who is Satan, 
was kosher. Since physical man in Kabbalah world is the second Adam in Kabbalah mythology, the story goes that this second Adam arrives in the garden as, as this higher dimensional being, okay, uh, with the task of accomplishing the great Tekun of the creation, which means the repair of the vessels. In other words, when Adam Cademan, that first Adam that we talked about, who is Keter, the crown of this Kabbalah tree, um, began to send the light through the different filters that are the sephirots of the tree down to Malkut. Well, it didn't work right and the tree broke and, and, and there was a shattering of the vessel. So then he kind of uh, fixes a few things and then he creates physical man to complete the work of Tikkun, which is the repair of the vessels of the higher worlds. So that was the second Adam's job. Now, Adam Cademan, again, is the co-creator in Kabbalah mythology of Elohim, because we've written Jesus out of the creation account. And um, when he puts this Adam, the physical man, in the garden, he does so with higher dimensional animals. So, so in their look at, at Genesis and, and that garden, they call it Gan Eden, uh, you, you, you have these animals that are there, but they're all higher dimensional. It, it's not necessarily as 3D as the world that we experience per se, which may or may not be true. Um, because I do believe that at that time, there was an overlap between heaven and earth to an extent. So, you know, whatever. But they look at all of the animals that God placed in the garden as being placed to help Adam, this second Adam, with his mission, which is to establish Tekun Olam, the repair of the worlds. And among these animals is this serpent, the Nakash. And so they understand it, that the serpent is in the garden for the same reason as all the other animals, to help Adam repair the worlds. So the serpent is kosher. You can use an elephant, you can use a whale, you can use a kangaroo and you can use a serpent because, because God has put them all here in order for us to do the job of Tikkun Olam bringing a correction to the shattered vessels. I ate the tree. So, so now we're rewriting everything that happens in the book of Genesis because in, in when we read Genesis, we find that the serpent beguiled Eve. He was evil. He led to the downfall of man. And when man fell through sin, death entered. Completely throw that out. That whole storyline is out. Why? Because 358 equals 358. Therefore, we have grounds to rewrite the whole story. All right. So they say Adam named the serpent thereby magnifying its unique essence. And the essence of the serpent is pure givora, they say. And it was to be used for divine purpose. In other words, the serpent's job was always <laughs> divine. Quoting from the book, The Secret Doctrine of the Gaon of Vilna, 
page 80. It says, this is especially true of the Nakash, for under Adam's subjugation, it had had a very sacred mission to perform. More than any other animal, it was to be a partner with Adam in bringing about the final tikkun, completion and transformation of all creation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? They believe this. They believe that the serpent, more than any other animal, was tasked to be a partner with Adam and bring about the final tikkun to transform all of creation. What do we need Jesus for when we have a serpent? Come on. Duh. So they go on. The serpent wasn't evil. He's not really evil. He was actually uh, a little bit of a victim here. And, and when Adam unbalanced the creation by eating from the tree of knowledge, since it's one with the tree of life and they grow out of the same root, this is what they say. So when he ate from one, he unbalanced everything. Well, now there's a second shattering of the vessels and the serpent becomes subject to Samael, an actual bad guy. So now the serpent has to be ridden by Samael like a donkey. <laughs> so the serpent's actually a victim of Adam. Now, can you imagine that this, this is why I know Satan is a narcissist? Because when you deal with a narcissistic personality, they're always the victim. A narcissist will beat his wife to a bloody pulp and tell the police, but you don't understand how she made me feel. That's a narcissist. It's always someone else's fault. This is what, how can you get more deeply into the heart of Satan on this whole thing? Like, oh man, you know, guys, Adam, like, come on, I'm the victim. So the Kabbalists believe it because 358 equals 358. Gematria. <laughs> so it's a mess going on. We're talking about the kosher serpent. So this leads to a concept in Kabbalah that there are two serpents known as two Leviathans, which are the twin messiahs in Kabbalah. Now, can you imagine? Now Leviathan becomes a good guy. So wait, the serpent in the garden's a good guy. Now there's two Leviathans. They're good guys. <laughs> and they're tied to the two messiahs? This is called the face palm. This is when you put your face in your palm because facial expression cannot denote the amount of excruciating psychological and emotional turmoil you are undergoing as you are explaining something that is so radically ridiculous. There are Christians that are in this tree teaching people to ascend into Metatron's cube to chant Yahweh in four directions like the Kabbalists do in order to travel 22 pathways through the tree, through sacred gates. I mean, I'm like, this is the system. This is what's underneath that. I don't like the tree. And I am not going to align myself with any ministry or so-called leader that's putting people in this system. I'm not going to do it. Now, it gets worse. It gets worse. 
So back to the PowerPoint. All right. Uh, in Kabbalah, this serpent is seen as rising from the dust of its curse, now in accordance with the following prophecy from the Zohar. Okay. So the serpent gets subdued by Samael, and he's not really a bad guy, but has to do bad things because Adam screwed up and he's the victim. So Zohar says in the 600th year of the sixth millennium, numerical equivalencies, 5,600, is 1840 CE or AD. That's the equivalency. They say from their prophecy, the gates of wisdom above, which they call Kabbalah, together with the wellspring of wisdom below, which they call science, will be opened up and the world will prepare to usher in the seventh millennium. This is symbolized by a man who begins preparations for ushering in the Sabbath on the afternoon of the sixth day. So right now, we are in a period of time that they would call the heels of the Messiah. And, and what they view as happening in this period of time is that there is supposed to be an initiation of Kabbalah for the world. And furthermore, this is going to be driven by the serpent rising from the dust of its curse. Because in establishing Tikkun Olam, that is the repair of the worlds, not only is the curse of Adam or man being removed, but also the curse of the serpent at the same time. And then from their own writings, they derive that the serpent is the driving force behind technological explosions that will merge with heavenly wisdom, that is mysteries contained in Kabbalah, to establish a new world order. Now, if you'll remember, Alice Bailey talked about a new world order. She was a member of the Theosophical Society, which was founded by H.P. Blavatsky, who was a Kabbalist. And from our... Uh, Kabbalah author, Joel David Bass, here it is in his own words, Kabbalah together with theoretical science can stimulate the redemption process. In other words, the serpent is working behind technology to unveil a techno future in which uh, 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 um, scientific developments and quantum physics and synthetic technologies and artificial intelligence yield a way for man to bring Tikkun Olam about. Okay, now, this is, this, is, this is what, you know, they say. Um, here's another quote. The hardware of modern technology is playing a direct messianic role. This is because the machines and computers of the technosphere are nothing less than the supernatural providence of Meshiach ben David, Torah, clothes in the natural guise of Meshiach ben, or clothed, in the natural guise of Meshiach ben Joseph, which is science. Within the context of the role and purpose of the primordial Nakash, it now becomes astoundingly clear that technology is none other than the original Tikkun of Genesis itself. Along with the curse of humanity, the curse and the enmity of the Nakash is also being removed. The essence of the Nakash is Meshiach ben Yosef. You'll have to excuse my typing. I typed these up in a flurry as I was trying to put all these notes together. So let me, let me, let me, let me say this one more time, right? They're looking, they're looking to 
the development of transhumanism and posthumanism to be God's redemptive agenda for man, along with partnership with the serpent to remove the curse from the creation. So the serpent through technology is preparing the world for to come. The serpent will help man achieve immortality and will help us save ourselves. <laughs> this is like their own words. So back to the point. Now, this is what I'm going to tell you, right? Okay, well, this scientific development that they talk about will inevitably produce the mark of the beast, the technology that overrides human nature and even our capacity to die. Those that are receiving the mark will worship the image of the beast, which appears to me to be artificial intelligence. So they're to come, which is the, uh, 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 the, the use of the kosher serpent is nothing less than a new world order prepared for antichrist. And we're back at the same point I've been making over and over and over again. Meshiach ben Yosef is our son of perdition. Now let's look at some Bible verses on the whole thing. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is the second beast or the false prophet. Now, remember, there are two serpents, two messiahs, two leviathans. All right. Anyway, he was given power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. I really do believe this is artificial intelligence, that the image of the beast is an artificial intelligence driven synthetic entity with his own sentience or consciousness. And then it says of the beast, he causes all both small and great. Rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one may buy, sell, or trade except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Then we connect that to Revelation 9, verses 3 through 6, talking about one of the trumpet judgments. It says, then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man in those days. Men will seek death and not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. There's your immortality concoction, right? You, you want to die, but you can't. So this mark, I believe, is a absolute augmentation of humanity but kabbalah is driving into this they're like we want it and we're gonna help bring it in we're gonna bring in our messiah ben yosef we're gonna get behind political zionism we're going to agree with transhumanist agendas because that is our prophetic future that is our destiny now, there are Christians putting people in this tree. You have to understand why I hate the tree. <laughs> um, are you getting this picture? Now, moving into a related subject, okay? 
talk about this gematria establishing a connection. Meshia, Messiah, 358. Serpent, 358. The idea that the serpent is part of God's redemptive agenda finds its way into some Christian doctrines through another door as well. And on the subject of the serpent becoming a redemptive agent in the prophesied cosmic restoration, we see shadows that have worked into the theology that comes through some groups in Christianity, particularly from certain Christian mystics more recently. Now, there have historically been various groups that have proffered a universalistic view of the redemptive work of God. What does that mean? This expands God's agenda to result in the redemption of all things holy and unholy back to original estate. This is universalism. True universalism concludes that Hades will be emptied and all humanity will find themselves reconciled to God at some point, whether they believe in Jesus or not, choose Jesus or not, or want Jesus or not. Ultimately, even Satan will be restored to his original role as a covering cherub of God. Everything just gets fixed, right? And so there's no such thing in this view as eternal judgment. That goes away completely. And this is taken from a few passages, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5.19, which says that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world, which is the Greek word cosmos, to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the use, the word of reconciliation. So there's uh, one scripture they'll lean on. And another scripture they'll point to is Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, or 19 and 20. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. In other words, at the end of the day, everything's getting reconciled, regardless of where the cards may fall in this age. So my question is, is this accurate? Furthermore, where does it blend with Kabbalah? In recent history, many people have connected with our platform and have been exposed to a, something branded the restoration of all things. This is an actual doctrine. They call it the restoration of all things from a number of voices. The conclusion is that the love of God will produce the salvation and restoration of all humans, all demons, and even Satan himself. Eternal judgment is a misnomer. And this probably isn't exactly the way it's phrased, but my version of the thought. We as maturing sons will ultimately move from a seat of conflict with the devil into a higher revelation that we need to approach the devil and demons with love so that we can be part of God's redemptive agency in this objective, the restoration of all things. Satan, let me love you back into your role as God's covering cherub. Now, the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21 is a text where we talk about the restitution of all things, right? And so this is where it all grounds out. It says, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, okay? 
and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. In other words, God's going to send Jesus back for a second advent. He is coming back. And it says, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. In other words, on this side of the conversation, when we get the demons restored to Jesus and Satan getting restored to Jesus and people getting restored to Jesus, like, you know, we're in the restoration of all things. And, and as the maturing sons of God, this is within our agency. We, we have to repair the broken universe this way. Now, you have to remember that the foundation of a large portion of the Christian mystic movement is Kabbalah. Okay, I said it because it's true. It's true. It's just the way it is. I'm not naming names. I'm just talking about issues. Now, moving on, let, let's, let's, let, let's crack this open here. The word restitution in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. Now, this is very interesting. So I want you all to pay a, a lot of attention to this. It comes from the Greek word apokatastasis. And this actually means the restoration of a true theocracy, a theocracy that is God as king ruling from heaven into earth realm. The restoration of a true theocracy. That's what's happening in the restitution of all things. How it looks, that's up for debate, but that's what the word means. And it says, or the perfect state before the fall. That's another meaning of the word. And that, that's just what the word means. And so it's a very, very interesting word. This word only occurs once in the traditional Bible because we have a, a Hebrew Old Testament and a Greek New Testament. But there is a Greek Old Testament called Septuagint. This word is used in another location in Septuagint which is the equivalency of our Malachi 4.6. And <clears throat> that passage says, and he shall turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children, lest I come and smite earth with a curse. The word turn, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children is the word apokatastasis in the Septuagint. That is, and he shall Establish restitution between the hearts of the fathers to the children. So, <clears throat> back to the main point. In some circles, this passage is being taken to mean that every fallen angel and every being, including the demons, are ultimately positioned for their redemption to their state prior to the fall. This would include in Lucifer. This concept ties right into another concept, which I already named, called Christian universalism. In other words, the idea that everyone, regardless of their actions or choices, will ultimately be saved. Now, I'm going to just say it in case any of you are missing it, scratching your head, or confused. The idea of apokatastasis in the mind 
of a student of Kabbalah, even if they claim Christianity, finds its counterpart in the doctrine of Tikkun Olam. It's literally the same thing. We're going to work with the serpent to repair the worlds. We're going to restore the serpent to his seat as the covering cherub. It's literally the same thing. Which is how I know that this doctrine of the restitution of all things coming from admitted students of Kabbalah, calling themselves Christian mystics, is actually a Kabbalistic doctrine that is a doctrine of demons, and it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> it's not the right conclusion. And, and you know, I, I'm just going to say this before I go on. I actually had someone come to me in a session. And they said to me, Daniel, I have a lot of demons. And I have a lot of problems. I said, well, let's try to help you with some of this. I said, well, wait, 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 wait. Let me explain. I just talked to a pastor who I know has the truth. And he told me that my demons get to be restored. So unless you're restoring my demons, I'm not going to let them go. Because you need to do this the right way. Oh. So I need to help your demons get restored so that you can get delivered the way you think it works. Yes, because I know the truth. It's called the restoration of all things. I'm a maturing son. Oh, really? You're a maturing son with all of those demons? Mm-hmm. 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 When you say it out loud, it sounds so ridiculous, right? This person didn't get delivered. I sat down with them for an hour. They talked through most of it with their own pontifications. It's like, God bless you. Wish you the best. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. And, and by the way, a lot of this is based on a whole lot of ignorance about the demonic realm because a lot of the demons are earthbound spirits that came out of the Nephilim that resulted from the incursion of the fallen angels, the watchers, with the daughters of men long after Adam sinned and death entered. <laughs> so they're not even necessarily original spirits in the creation of God. They're literally abominations from the beginning. Their origin is illegitimate. So what is God going to restore the demons to? But see, some people are so ignorant. It's like, well, I just love everything. No. <laughs> you are so deceived. You're so deceived. You're so deceived. <clears throat> so back to the Kabbalists. Their view, Kabbalist view, is that we must hasten the return of the Messiah through global mitzvah, returning to Torah, returning to Noahide laws so that the kingdom of Israel can be fully restored through political Zionism and Tikkun can be established through technology paired with Torah as the serpent arises to be a redemptive agent in the uh, 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 agenda that God has for the creation. We will exalt a kosher serpent as a secret doctrine regarding God's redemptive plan for man in the universe. Satan is returning to his role as God's covering cherub. Ah, ah, barf, okay? <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. It's all counterfeit. 
Now, I'm saying that, but Daniel, they do have 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 1. So surely you're going to come up with a better theological explanation for your point. Of course I am. Let's look at the Bible's commentary on Satan's fall, past, present, and future. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, okay? This, this is what the Bible says. It says, look, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cast down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne upon the stars. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. That's the plan for you. It doesn't say that you're going to get to do what you wanted to do, Lucifer. No, you're going into the pit. And after the pit, we're going to learn you're going into a lake of fire. Now, let's continue. <clears throat> so the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, right? So, so, so this happens. And then we find a serpent in the garden who is already evil deceiving eve beguiling her he's not holy he's not kosher <laughs> he's beguiling Eve, and, and then this is what happens the plain reading of the text right we're throwing gematria 358 equals 358 so we got something here but throw that out of the window this is what it says behold because you have done this serpent you are cursed more than any all cat you are cursed more than every evil beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it actually reads, he will crush your head. Doesn't sound like restoration to me. So people are making stuff up, but they're not really making it up because they're studying Kabbalah and teaching it to unwitting recipients because we don't know what Kabbalah is. So we get this garbage. And you know what they call it? They call it a Hebrew worldview. Well, I don't have Greek thinking. I have Hebrew thinking. Oh, so that's how you're languaging this now. So now this kosher serpent is just Hebrew thinking. It's the Hebrew way of understanding things. <laughs> because, right, because you're leaning on the Zohar that was written in Aramaic to disguise the fact that it didn't even exist in written form until the <laughs> Middle Ages. That's ancient Hebrew. <laughs> what the heck? It's all a bunch of malarkey. Now, Jesus goes on, right? <laughs> in... Luke 10, 18, he says this. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, right? God did throw Satan out of heaven. And then he crushed his kingdom at his death, burial, and resurrection. So it says in Colossians 2, 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And then he says in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, look, my children are going to share in what this seed of the woman has done. So, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The word crush comes from the Greek word syntribo. 
meaning to break in pieces, to tread down, to put Satan under your foot and step on him. Stop, 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 stop. Yeah, that's how I live. I'm not giving that up. And I'm here to train you to step into that aspect of maturing sonship. Maturing sons don't work with the serpent. They crush the serpent. That's a maturing son. Matthew chapter 25 has a passage of scripture talking about the sheep and goat nations. And in verse 31, it says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. This is an actual event. This will actually take place. Jesus will return to the earth. And when he does, he will gather all the ethnos, the nations, before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will divide them sheep and goats and of the goats it is written in verse 41 then he will say to those on the left hand depart from me you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels he doesn't say that it was prepared for man now there are nations that unfortunately will go there but it says this fire was prepared For the devil and his angels. In other words, no, there is no kosher serpent. There is no restoration of Satan to his position as the covering cherub of God. There is a prepared place within the finished work of Jesus Christ in his redemptive agency over the creation that is a everlasting fire. Now let's look at everlasting fire so we get a better understanding of what this really means. Because sometimes we look at a Greek word and it's not really what it gets translated to in English. Some things are a little bit more confusing. Well, that word everlasting, of the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, comes from the Greek word aeonios. Now, aeon means age. Aeonios means everlasting. And it is, in its exact meaning, to be without beginning and end, that which always has been, always will be, without end, never to cease, everlasting. In other words, in other words, you have to understand that just as eternal as Jesus is being without beginning and end, so is the nature of the fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. That fire has no beginning and that fire has no end. What it says. This everlasting fire exists as a cosmic lake that is prepared for the devil and his angels. It is a realm that is as timeless as the nature of God Therefore, how can it be argued that any of the parties being cast into this realm see vindication 
at the return of the Messiah. Now you have to understand in Acts chapter three, we're talking about the restitution of all things being the event that allows for the revealing, the release of Messiah to come to the earth, right? So this is, this is Jesus's second advent. Now, there, the, the idea of the restitution of all things means that at his, at his second advent, all this restoration is happening. But that literally doesn't make any sense at all when you look at biblical chronologies as a novice. In fact, according to Revelation, at the second coming of Jesus, Satan is bound for a thousand years. In other words, that correspondence, when you have the Bible interpret itself, when the word interprets the word, the Bible says in Isaiah 14 that this Lucifer will be cast into the pit. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we see that event happening when he's cast into a pit. Yet in Matthew 25, we learn that there is an everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and he doesn't go into the fire until a thousand years later, after the return of Messiah. It doesn't really take much thinking. It's just like literally what it just, it just says that. So you have to dismiss all of that just pretend like it's not there to go into Kabbalah and to deceive people with this nonsense. So here, here it is. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 21. It says, now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Come on. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written and no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a white robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God and on his robe and on his thigh, a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying, to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their great armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. He has an army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. Ah, there's Mashiach ben Yosef. <laughs> By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. There is our everlasting fire. The fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded forth from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay? That absolutely straightforward. It's really hard to mess this one up. Now, if you just keep reading into chapter 20, you learn the rest of the story. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. There's our Isaiah 14 correspondence and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, 
that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. In other words, he's not going to the lake of fire just yet. But he's cast into the bottomless pit. Skip down to verse 10. The devil is let out after a thousand years. And it says, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, how does that equate to the kosher serpent being an agent in God's redemptive agenda and ultimately being restored? Because God is just so loving, he can't help himself. Please, someone explain to me how I can get that out of this. I mean, if you could explain that to me with this passage, I might be willing to consider your Kabbalistic doctrine. But until then, I mean, this is just really tough. It's a hard sell. It's a hard sell. You know, it's an easy sell if you have a bunch of people that don't actually read the Bible. But, you know, this is the thing. It goes on and it continues. Then I saw a great white throne of him who sat on it and from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which they had written in the books. Now, here we do see Hades being emptied. Hades does get emptied. So does death. And so does the sea. So it says in verse um, 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. They are delivering up all of these souls for judgment. It says... And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Remember, this lake has no beginning and no end. It's an infinity loop with no escape. That's what it is. Because that's what the Bible says. So... The idea of a redemption for Satan comes not from a straightforward plain text reading of the Bible. It comes from Gematria because 358 equals 358. It comes from Kabbalah, which is, a, which is the government of Lucifer. From Antichrist roots. So coming back to some of this other stuff, I mean, all we have to do is just read the whole section of text. And we find that it's not quite so universal. Colossians chapter 1, right? Because it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace with the blood of the cross. The, the blood of the cross is, is finished. It's all that's required. There's peace with everything. I'm redeeming the whole cosmos in myself because I'm Jesus. So therefore, demons, Satan, fallen angels, everybody's getting some. It's like, wait a minute. Let's read the whole thing. Back up to verse 19. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Yes. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If, if indeed you continue in the faith. In other words, there's no universalism. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, by which I, Paul, became a minister. Like, it, 
yeah, if you take Jesus out of the redemptive agenda, then yeah, maybe you can redeem the creation outside of Jesus, but that's a total antichrist concept. God is redeeming and restoring everything in him. And so anything that rejects him is not in him. And so we have to continue in like it, it's it, it's not that hard, right? The redemption accomplished in Christ Jesus is always connected to faith in him for the whole creation, period. You cannot take Jesus out of this thing. Paul says, if you continue in the faith, because he meant it. All Kabbalah-derived ideas and doctrines work to remove the centrality of the work of Jesus and a required submission to his kingship. Second Corinthians chapter five. Let's read the whole thing. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, wait a minute. Let's read that one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if he is a new creation, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. There, there's that passage, right? Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and it's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world or cosmos to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We employ you on Christ. We have to be reconciled to God. In other words, yeah, there's this work of reconciliation that Jesus finishes, but to be included in that work of reconciliation, we are sent out as ambassadors to implore you, to plead with you on Christ's behalf to step into that because you can be outside of that. Universalism is not found here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This passage is all about being found in Christ. There is one name under heaven by which men must be saved. Now, there is some strange stuff that happens. Okay, there's some strange stuff. And there are soul parts of people that have believed in Jesus after their physical bodies have died. I've seen that happen. But you know what? Universalism is not qualified by these strange encounters. The truth is that perfect love requires perfect justice. And perfect justice requires a balance of judgment and mercy. While mercy triumphs over judgment, judgment is mandatory on those who refuse divine mercy. Therefore, there will be eternal judgment. There is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This does not go away. That's the word. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Be sure to subscribe to our channel, like our video, and share this with friends. This podcast is a production of Bride Ministries International. 
visit our website at brideministriesinternational.com to enjoy the Bride Ministries Church, the Bride Ministries Institute, free resources, and to support us financially. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.